Okay, so friends, we have about three more sermons left in our series through the book of Genesis because we'll end in Genesis chapter 11 and we're already in Genesis chapter 9. And today is actually going to be the last sermon on Noah's part of the story, which I feel like has been kind of like a mini-series on on its own. Um, But before we end Noah's story today in Genesis chapter 9, let me just recap again the general story outline that we've seen so far, or else this last scene in Noah's life is not going to really make sense to us. Okay, so let's recap Noah's story real quick. Noah's story is a story about God recreating a broken world. That's the gist of it. God's recreating a a broken world. Now, how was Noah's world back then so broken? Well, if we read Genesis chapter 6, we see that it was filled with murder and with violence throughout the whole earth. People were just killing everyone, right? Genesis 6 showed us that after Adam's fall, before the flood, everyone had this murderous, violent intent toward everyone else. But let's take the question a step deeper. Why was Noah's world filled with such murder and violence? Well, the answer may be obvious to you, but because it was also filled with broken relationships. That's, that's the gist of it, okay? Let's, again, think about this as a whole story. Remember, after mankind sinned, and broke their relationship with God in Genesis chapter 3. They went from being naked and unashamed to being naked and ashamed, right? And then what immediately happened? Well, their relationship with each other began to also break. First, Adam and Eve's relationship, their marriage started to crumble. And then after that, their kids, Cain and Abel, started to kill each other. And then before we know it, after this family unit kind of all broke, in Genesis 6, the whole world was filled with the same murderous, broken relationships that we see here in this family unit. It's Genesis 6. Okay, so then the flood solved all that, right? It's done now. God started over, Noah started over, the world's new again, no more broken relationships. Well, that's what you would expect to see in the story. But far from it, what we actually see here in Genesis 9 is that the same pattern, the same mistakes that mankind made in Genesis 3 repeated itself again here once more time in Genesis 9, even after the flood. And as discouraging as as this may be, this actually is a really practical passage for us. Why? Because it clarifies the problem for us in more detail. Think of this as going back to the doctor for a second time. You know how you go to see the doctor because the original symptoms appear, right? That's Genesis 3 and 6, a lot of killing, a lot of murder. Those are the symptoms. And then a preventive treatment took place, the flood, Genesis 7 and 8, and it's done, right? But then after that, the symptoms came back again. That's our passage today in Genesis 9 the symptoms reappearing. But now that we're re-diagnosing it for a second time, what we see this time around is not just a surface-level issue that we saw in Genesis 6, which is violence and murder. Okay, we know that. Great. But what we see now is, is the deeper issue, the deeper problem, and a way to treat it. Okay? That's what Genesis 9 is offering us today, the specific antidote that can stop broken relationships from intensifying and growing 
to where it'll end up murdering your marriage, your family unit, your community, your church, and your world. Important stuff, if you ask me, okay? Let's get into it. This is the Word of God. Take it from Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 to 29, where we see the sins of Genesis 3 repeating itself again, even after the flood. This is God's Word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a, vi- a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, and the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him, He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Thus says the Lord, Okay, there are three similarities here that we see between the fall of Adam in Genesis 3 and the fall of Noah in Genesis 9. And seeing these similarities will give us the antidote for chaos. Okay, what are the three similarities? First, we see the same path toward chaos. Second, we see the same seed of murder. And third, we see the same antidote for the struggle. All right, the same path, the same seed, the same antidote. Let's start with our first point, the same path toward chaos. Okay, so up to this point, Noah, who in Genesis chapter 9 represented mankind, right? Up to this point, how has the Bible described him to be? The Bible described him to be this great and righteous man who feared the Lord and trusted the Lord, right? He was upright and blameless, Genesis says. But then, in a split second, here we just read, after the flood, what did this righteous man do? Like that, he fell into sin. Okay. Does that pattern remind you of someone else in the book of Genesis? Adam. Wasn't Adam also the representative for mankind? Did Adam not also start off upright and blameless, but then in a split second fell into sin. Same pattern, same start, same beginning. But we got to talk about what exactly was Noah's sin here. Adam's sin was clear, right? He ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. What was Noah's sin? Was it drinking wine? Not quite. And I'm not just saying this because I enjoy drinking wine, okay? But drinking wine in the Bible has never, ever been a sin. It's not. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, this is surprising to you. Check it out for yourself. During the festival of the Lord, do you know what God encouraged Israel to do with their money? He said two things, okay? This is during the festival of God. He said, I want you to tithe 
And then Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26, he said, I want you to buy wine so that you can celebrate more merrily. <laughs> I'm just the messenger, okay? Psalm 104 says, God brings forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Paul in the New Testament told Timothy that it's okay to add some wine to his water for his frequent ailments. Jesus made wine so good, so robust, that people at the end of a wedding in John chapter 2 in Cana stopped the wedding celebration to admire the wine. And not only did he make it, he drank it. In John chapter, in Matthew chapter 26, in the Last Supper, he said to his disciples, drink this wine. And by the way, I'll drink this wine again. Where? In heaven. Noah's sin here was not drinking the wine. Noah's sin here was the three words that came after that. He became drunk. Although the Bible allows, it even celebrates enjoying wine. Drunkenness, on the other hand, is heavily prohibited. And I'm not even going to tell you the verses because it's everywhere. Okay? Don't get drunk. That's pretty clear. Now, how do you enjoy God's good gift and creation appropriately without overindulging yourself in it to where you end up disobeying God in your enjoyment of it? Well, that's a question for the ages, right? And it can be asked, by the way, of any created thing on earth, not just fermented grapes, okay? Noah's fault here, like Adam in Genesis 3, wasn't in the fact that he enjoyed God's good gift in creation, but it was in the fact that he ended up worshiping the gift instead of the gift giver. He made something good ultimate. That's idolatry. Noah drank so much wine, verse 21 says, that he passed out naked in his tent. So he probably took his clothes off, right? And before he was able to put on his nightgown, he just passed out <laughs> in a naked, shameful state. And by the way, okay, connect this to Genesis 3. After Adam's sin, Genesis chapter 3, what did his sin also lead to? Nakedness and shame. Same pattern, same path. And also, like Adam, Noah's nakedness here in Genesis 9 led to what? It led to strife and conflict starting from the family unit. For Adam and Eve, it was their marriage. Here, it was Ham, Noah's youngest son, saw his father laying there naked in the tent. And instead of doing the right thing, which is to immediately cover it up, which is what his two brothers did, Ham instead, in verse 22 says, reported his father's nakedness to his two brothers. Now, why was this reporting so bad? Well, because it wasn't just an innocent report, okay? Picture this. You find your friend who's generally an upright man, who's generally a righteous man, a good guy like Noah was here. But then one day, this guy slipped. He drank too much. He passed out naked. If you truly cared for them, if you truly cherished them, what would your first gut instinct reaction, what would you do? You would cover them up. That would be the first thing. That's just an instinct because you care for this person's honor. Before you tell anyone else, before you do anything else, you know? Like, oh. And Ham here could have done that. 
but he didn't. He left his father naked and told his two brothers about it. Why? Well, most commentaries here agree that Ham here was actually trying to heap up unnecessary shame upon Noah, upon his father. This was an act of mockery. This was an attempt to dishonor. Okay. So before I move on, let's ask the big picture question again. How in the world does this story of Noah's nakedness here connect with the rest of Genesis? Well, friends, do you want to know how to turn a world filled with sinners back into a world filled with murder that we saw in Genesis 6? You know how you do that? Here's how you do it. Flaunt other people's sin and shame openly, publicly, and unnecessarily like Ham did here to Noah. Go ahead. Let's all do that. You want to turn a small argument into murder? You want to turn I don't enjoy seeing you into I don't enjoy seeing you alive? Then flaunt that person's flaws like Ham did here instead of covering it when possible like Shem and Japheth did in our passage, which moves on to our next point. It's the same seed of murder. Okay. Let's bring this to our lives. Have you ever done something wrong in your life? And then have your mistakes be publicly paraded by someone in such a way that's obviously unnecessary. You experience that in your life? I see a few nods. Now let me ask you, do you remember what you fantasized doing to that person? Do you remember what you imagined you would do to that person in the silent crevices of your very creative minds? And let me ask you, if you actually carried those fantasies out, would it have led to unity and peace or bloody murder? Yeah, but it's all just in my head, Tess. Well, that's where every endeavor begins, in your head. Or, on the other hand, have you ever had a mistake or made a mistake, but then the people involved, or perhaps even the person you committed it to, went out of their way to make sure that you were covered up from unnecessary shame, from unnecessary dishonor, One is a seed of strife and murder. The other, friends, that's a preview of what heaven will feel like. Let me read to you some verses that, that talk about this. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. First Peter 4, 8, you guys know this one. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love, what? Covers a multitude of sins. Here's how the story of Noah's naked sin and shame here connect with the larger story of the flood. God saying here this, look, humans, <laughs> Here's how you can protect the world 
from spiraling back down into the murderous, violent state it was in before the flood in Genesis 6. Here's how you nip it in the bud, so to speak. Here's how you stop it before it begins. When someone does something wrong, apply justice, of course, as required. Don't water it down. Don't be scared to address it. But if at all possible, when at all feasible, don't unnecessarily parade around their mistake in order to heap up more shame upon them than necessary. Why? If you do that, you'll turn your family, your marriage, your community, your church, and your world back to how things were in Genesis 6. Don't do that. Now, how do I uphold righteousness and apply consequences when necessary on one hand, but yet on the other, do it in such a way that doesn't unnecessarily parade people's shame around? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's a formula, but I think a good principle here, what we see from the passage, is that before you speak and take action in regards to this person's mistakes, ask yourself this. Have I done everything I could possibly do to make sure that my approach here minimizes unnecessary shame? Have I done everything in my power? Look at the length of detail that the author took here in verse 23 to describe what Shem and Japheth had to do in order to cover Noah's nakedness and shame. The tedious detail here is intentional to kind of slow the story down and make us focus on what they did. First, they had to lay the garment they were going to use to cover him on their shoulders. Why? Because they kind of had to walk backwards toward Noah because they didn't want to see him. And on top of that, to make sure that they didn't see his shame, they turned their faces backwards as they walk so that they don't accidentally see Noah's shameful naked state. It's like maybe they were walking backwards and like saw his toes or something. They just, you know, kind of covered him. It was awkward. It required a lot of planning. It required a lot of strategizing. It required a lot of thinking. It required a lot of hard work and tack to pull this off. But they did it. Oh, so what then? We're just meant to bend over backwards all the time to cover up people's mistakes and sins? Well, again, no. Sin needs to be addressed. It does. And, and some sins maybe even require a public address. They do. And the Bible acknowledges that. But that wasn't the nature of Noah's sin here. It's not like Noah passed out naked on the streets after physically abusing someone in his drunken state. He passed out where, verse 21 specifies? In his tent. Alone, or at least the passage indicates that. Ham didn't need to address this specific sin as if it was some urgent public concern that everyone needed to know about immediately. That's unnecessary. He heaped up unnecessary shame. So let's, let's think about this in our everyday relationships. Parents, when you discipline your child, are you sure that you've thought through the execution well enough to where it doesn't heap up more shame upon them than necessary? Children, when you want your parents to see how costly their blind spots were, are you coming in hot? <laughs> you know, guns a-blazing? Or are you letting the fact that you too 
are a forgiven sinner dictate your words and your actions. When you churhat, you know, or vent to your close friends about certain frustrations that you have in regards to another particular person, vent on, please, okay? This is the thing. Here's what I'm scared of. I don't want you guys now to think, oh, I can no longer just vomit my frustrations to a close friend anymore, you know? Or when I go to counseling with you, Tez, I've got to really watch what I say. It's like, no, 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 no. Go do it. We need that space. I get it. You need mature, trusted people in your life who love you and know you and love God and know God and, and that you know, even if you vomit to them your woes, they'll be mature enough to handle it well. You need those people. Okay, I'm not saying don't do that. But it also might be healthy to ask ourselves, at what point has our innocent venting turned into vicious and vindictive gossip. Where's the line? And oh my, have I made mistakes in this area. I really have. I've turned innocent venting into gossip a few times. I've also avoided addressing people's sin when I needed to because I was too much of a coward to do so. I've made mistakes in both extremes all the time. And I don't know if I'll ever find the perfect balance or if I'll be able to maintain that balance when I find it. But you know who scares me the most? It's not the people who lean this way or this way. The people who scare me the most are the people who claim they have found the perfect balance. You guys scare me. If you're sitting here today going, Tez, I appreciate all this, I really do. But you see, my shame compass is flawless. You know, my whole life, I've been able to perfectly sense how much shame a particular person needs in order to address their particular mistake at any given time. And that's why the balance of universal peace hangs on my shoulders. (laughs) If that's you, I'm scared of you. You know why? Because for sure you're out of balance. (laughs) You just... You don't see it. You don't see it. All God is asking us to do here is to have a meek and teachable heart that's willing to fine-tune its approach as you make mistakes in this area. That's it. The unity and peace of your marriage, of your family unit, of your community, and of your church, and of your world depend on such meek hearts. So, here's a question. How can our hearts get to such a meek state to where like Shem and Japheth here, we can become the kind of people who minimize unnecessary shame? Okay, let's move on to our last point. We see here the same antidote for the struggle. So, we've seen a few similarities here, okay, between Genesis 9 and 3. Let's list them again. In both cases, we saw the representative of mankind, Adam and Noah, start off good, but then fall into sin. In both cases, we also saw that their sin led to naked shame. And in both cases, we also saw that because their naked shame was not handled well, that tore the family unit apart, and then it led to the rest. Okay? But... There's one more similarity that we haven't really talked about yet, 
And it's that in both cases, after the mess happened, there was a separation that occurred between the descendants. Okay? Okay. Remember back Genesis 3. After Adam sinned in verse 14 to 15, remember what God said? The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here it is. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, although you shall bruise his heel. Okay, there's a separation between two offspring here, two groups of people, and the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman. But the offspring of the serpent here, obviously, is, is symbolic in many ways because serpents can't have human children, okay? So these people here are those who, like the serpent, rebel against God. Cursed are they, God said. Okay, that's, that's them. These are people who in the Old Testament would be nations like Canaan, Egypt, Syria, Babylon, the Philistines, those guys, Right? There's a separation between them and the offspring of the woman who are the people who will serve the Lord, God's people. In other words, Israel. Okay, back to Genesis 9 to our passage today. What happened here? After everything went down, the same exact thing happened. Look at verse 24. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, who is Ham's son, descendant. Cursed be Canaan. And now this is interesting. If you go one chapter ahead, Genesis chapter 10, and you look at the list of nations that will be Ham and Canaan's descendants, who are they? The Canaanites, obviously, Canaan, right? But then also, the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, and the Philistines. All the nations who, like the serpent, rebelled against God and his people. It's all in chapter 10. But on the other hand, Shem's descendants, who also include Japheth's descendants, verse 27 says, so that stream of descendants is one stream, okay? They are blessed. And if you look to Genesis 11, two chapters from here, guess who's mentioned as Shem's descendant? It's Abraham. Who's Abraham? The father of Israel, who is God's people. Okay, let's bring it together. What's the point here? The point is this. There will be two groups of people on this earth. Those who rebel against the Lord, let's call them the descendants of the serpent slash ham. And there will be people who serve the Lord. Let's call them the descendants of the woman slash Shem. Okay. Now, how can you tell who's who? just because they claim to be one or the other? How, how can you tell the difference between the two? Well, there are ton of, tons of characteristic differences that separate the two in the Bible. One will worship idols, one will worship the Lord, all, all kinds of stuff. But the characteristic difference that I believe this passage is emphasizing here is that the descendants of the serpent slash Ham are people who, like Ham, enjoy exposing people's shame unnecessarily. And the descendants of the woman slash Shem do not. They don't. They instead, within the bounds of justice and reason, whenever possible, seek to cover the shame of their neighbor instead of expose it. That's how you can tell who's who. So, 
bringing it back to the here and now, we who are here at church today, we who claim to be God's people, in other words, the descendants of the woman slash Shem, are we living up to the description that this passage says should mark us? Do we go above and beyond to protect the honor of our neighbor? Do we take the extra mile to cherish people's dignity when possible? Do we take seriously the worth of a name? Do we? Or do we enjoy juicy gossip? Do we relish seeing other people's shame exposed? And do we speak about others with slithering tongues? What describes you? What a convicting question, isn't it? Because deep inside, I think we all know there's a lot of serpent in us, isn't there? We do enjoy doing the things that the Bible says will lead to death and destruction. But here's where we see the ultimate distinction that separates these two seeds, okay? Stick with me. See, you got to keep going down the descendant line. The descendant of the woman, God's people, slash Shem, right, keeps on going to Abraham, to Israel, but it doesn't end with Israel. If you keep tracing the line down further, Genesis 17 and 22 tells us what? That God promised Abraham, Israel, will eventually have an ultimate offspring, an ultimate descendant, an ultimate child, the Bible says, that will come from this line of descendants the epitome of the seed of the woman, or Shem. And no one had a clue who that person would be until Paul, in Genesis chapter 3, I mean in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, tells us, what did he say? This is what he said. The promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus is the blessed offspring of the woman of Noah of Shem. Like Eve, he'll bring us life. Like Noah, remember what Noah's name meant? He'll bring us rest. And like Shem, he will cover us from our sin and shame. But unlike Shem, he'll do so not just with a garment, he'll do so with his own righteousness as he gave up his life, bled, and drew his last breath naked on a cross to cover you. So what separates these two groups of people then? It isn't just that one enjoys exposing other people's shame and the other doesn't. But the ultimate difference is that one is still exposed in their sin and shame and the other has been covered by Christ. Who in Hebrew chapter 12 says, endured the shame of the cross on your behalf. That's the essential difference between the two. Are you covered? 
do you still find confidence to go before the Lord based on your religiosity? Do you still find boldness to go before the throne of a holy God with the good things you've done this month? They're like spider webs, and the holiness of God is like a rock that falls right through it. It will not hold. Do not approach a holy God with your list of good deeds. You will perish. Instead, what does Revelation say? How is the church of God going to approach him? Covered in a robe, so white, so pure, in a wedding gown, it says. Recovered from our nakedness and shame. Why? Because Christ died for you. So let's circle back as we close here. Why should we, God's people, the descendant of Shem, seek to cover the shame of others when possible, even when doing so comes at our expense? It's because our shame has been covered by the seed of the woman who paid the ultimate cost to give us honor and life. You want to stop the world from spiraling down the path of death and violence like it did in Genesis 6? You know what? Let's start smaller. You want to stop your marriage from spiraling down the path of death and violence? You want to stop your family unit from spiraling down the path of death and violence? You want to stop your friend group, your your community, your church from spiraling down the path of death and violence? Then here's what you need to do. You need to cultivate a meek heart, a wise and meek heart heart that knows how to address sin when necessary, yet without uncovering shame unnecessarily. A meek heart that seeks to dignify and honor instead of humiliate and shame. A meek heart that'll only be produced when it realizes that its own shame has been fully covered at someone else's expense. That's what we desperately need. Do that, CCC. And God just might use us to be agents of life and shalom amidst this world that's full of violence and death. Let's pray. Father, how far have we fallen short of the essence of of the heart of this passage? which is to not promote shame, but rather cover other people's shame. Not incite and instigate dishonor, but rather um, initiate and protect dignity and honor. Help us, Father, people with a lot of serpents in our hearts, people with slithering tongues, who in a drop of a hat can easily turn innocent venting into vicious gossip, can easily turn um, talking about someone to breaking that person down. Help us be merciful to us, Father. Remind us that we ourselves have honor from our shame and are covered from our sin because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave up his life and endured the shame for us. May this be the attitude that we represent here in this gospel community. 
all that we fail over and over again. Thank you for your gospel. Remind us of this gospel as we sing our last song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.